Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the important role of independent mortgage banks in serving FHA borrowers, as well as the newest IMB to jump into joint ventures, New American Funding. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking with Matt Dowd, Vice President of Product Management at ICE Mortgage Technology, about mortgage automation. Matt, where do you see the biggest opportunity to streamline the process? Well, I think we've already made significant strides in automating underwriting, but there's certainly room for improvement. I think the further advancements you're going to see will come in the areas of using artificial intelligence and more machine learning to improve the accuracy and the efficiency of underwriting. But underwriting is just part of the process. I think it's prudent for a lender to look at the holistic picture and the entire borrower journey from the point of thought through post-closing. So. You know, do you have an appropriate loan application that's easy to use? Look at your closing process, look at your servicing compliance, really look at every aspect of the business to the borrower journey, because ultimately you want to provide an exceptional experience for that borrower. That is so important. And listeners, you can find out more at icemortgagetechnology.com. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Great to have you back. We have lots of lender news to talk about, which is always really fun. So I wanted to start off with an opinion piece that we published, and it was by Dave Stevens and Scott Olson. So, you know, people very familiar to most of our audience, but if they're not, um, you know, Dave Stevens was the CEO of the MBA before that. You know, he had been at Freddie Mac, Wells Fargo, he'd been FHA commissioner. So, I mean, he's somebody who's very plugged into the industry. And then Scott Olson is the executive director of the Community Home Lenders of America, which used to be the Community Home Lenders Association, I believe. But either way, very two very familiar people to our audience. And they're really making a point here that they're talking about the incredible value of independent mortgage banks, IMBs. And they're obviously both very, uh, you know, they have they have a stake in this. But I think it's interesting to our audience what they what they laid out here and kind of what they're calling for. Maybe you could outline that for us. Yeah, so there have been a lot of questions lately over the health of the independent mortgage banks, and that's principally because of the bank runs and and the fears that people have related to large-scale systemic issues in, in banking, and that includes mortgage banking. And, and mortgage banking is uh, a complicated business to run, and it's generally very low margin. And so when we talk about banks and where they're maybe getting in over their their heads or didn't uh, hedge their risks very well. We typically talk about really these regional lenders, the Silicon Valley banks, the First Republics, and, and these are important players in the overall banking space. And even if they're not huge mortgage originators themselves, a lot of these types of banks are really big warehouse lenders. And, and warehouse lending is the lifeblood of independent mortgage banks. And so there has been this uh, question posed and government regulators and politicians have been very interested in assuring that 
this is an industry that will be able to provide uh, stable services to consumers and they're not going to just go bust one day. I, I think that a lot of people were caught very much surprised by what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and, and some of these others. And there are a bunch of different reasons that those banks had uh, problems, some of which related to crypto, some of which, you know, were buying assets um, that have really depreciated uh, over the course of a few years. And I, I think what Dave Stevens is arguing, uh, Scott Olson is arguing, is that independent mortgage banks are structured differently. And, and maybe it's not commonly known that they don't, because they're not depositors, um, there might be this misperception that they're not active in their communities, that they're not well-managed companies, that they're not able to make it through a difficult time. And their argument is they are. And, and they also provide a huge amount of valuable services that the banks, especially related to mortgage lending, have really exited. And, and we talk about minority lending. We talk about the FHA program. That is very much uh, in the wheelhouse of independent mortgage banks. You don't see the Wells Fargo's, you don't see the JP Morgan Chases of the world that are involved in those programs. It's it's something that they've retreated from pretty much entirely over the last, really since the great financial crisis. And the argument that Dave Stevens, Scott Olson making is these are actually pretty strong business models and they're doing pretty well all in all, even if there is some contraction, even if volume is down significantly and they don't think that there's, uh, you know, a, a major reckoning occurring, you know, and that, that is not to say that they don't expect that there will be more mergers and acquisitions and job losses and, and the like, but as the industry goes, uh, it's not, it's not at a crisis point and it doesn't appear to be heading that way. I, I appreciate you talking about FHA because I, I do think that's one of their main points is that um, they, you know, they use Urban Institute data in this um, article to say that IMBs are contributing 90% of the loans where the highest concentration of minority purchase transactions are, right? And they're like, if that's true, which it is, it's like w- with this fact, you know, then why are, why are some of these policy policymakers so focused on attacking this channel. So they want us to, you know, their, their uh, policymakers priorities are serving um, some of the lower income uh, borrowers. Uh, FHA serves, uh, you know, I think it's 49% uh, minority buy- home buyers. Um, yeah, so, half, so reaching yeah. some of the goals that we're trying to do in, in getting this gap. And if you look at who's serving them to your point, it, it is IMB. So I thought that that was interesting um, that they're making that point. And I know that one of, one of the things that Dave Stevens has written um, over the years for us is that people who are like, Oh, IMBs are less regulated than depositories. He's like, but they're not under-regulated. It is a different kind of regulation, right? I mean, they don't have the same capital reserve requirement, obviously, but there, there's sure. plenty, he, he would argue, there's plenty of uh, regulation around IMBs. And, and I feel like that's what he's saying here as well. Yeah. And, and the other side of it is there are legitimate fears that some of these independent mortgage banks haven't managed their finances well enough. And, and wherever you are in any kind of business climate, if you go four, five, six quarters without making a profit, you're going to be in dire straits. And if you have more exposure to certain types of programs where there's a higher risk of default, and let's take Ginny, for instance, 
yes, it's it's a government insured program, but the time in which you get repaid, uh, the expense, the hassle going through the program, there are, I think you could say, improvements that could be made to those programs. And some companies may not be able to keep at it while they wait for the government to return their money should some loans go bad. Um, so it's it's not like we're without uh, you know risk here. There is certainly quite a bit of risk when the IMBs are they don't have the the dependence of a balance sheet, right? They sell their loans typically in a month, you know, and and some keep their MSRs, some don't. But these are businesses designed to do a task and to get rid of the loan pretty quickly. And and in most cases, they go to the GSEs. There are some, of course, who dabble in on QM and who take on more commercially types of business. Uh, products in lending, but the vast majority, their business is going to be Fannie, Freddie, Ginny. And that's probably going to be 85, 90, sometimes more, you know, sometimes all. That's <laughs> most of the banks we talk about. That's pretty much all the business they do, you know. So it, it's, if there is another major problem in banking, let's say it's a Silicon Valley esque issue related to something else, this is all interconnected. And if they're entirely relying on warehouse lenders, but the warehouse lenders end up going belly up or rates shoot up in the eights and they stay there, I don't think it's going to happen. But these are risky industries. They're low margin, they're risky. And I would give a JP Morgan Chase a better chance of standing, you know, after a couple bad economic quarters than a Loan Depot, right? Not to pick on Loan Depot, just as an example. I, I think uh, one of the one of the points that um, they make in this is that you know the IMBs are filling the gap left by the bigger banks when they um, by the depositories when they pulled back after the financial crisis, which you and I have talked about before. And the fact that, you know, they can serve these bars because they have less credit overlays. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're serving these bars because they go lower on the FICO and they've got, you know, they don't have the DTI overlay, even though they're still um, com- conforming with the program that they're that they're submitting for or that they're doing this under. It's, it's different than the overlays that the banks have gotten. So I, I just think it's a really interesting part of our industry that is back and forth, right? And we have seen, um, you know, you see how the depositories are in a better spot in some ways right now because they have deposits, right? I mean, that the mortgage is not their own business, uh, only business to your point. Like uh, this is a tough business to make money in now more than ever. And, you know, so you have depositories who have all these other ways to do it. They're doing car loans. They're doing, you know, life insurance. They're doing who, who knows what, right? But, you know, mortgage IMBs, this is it. And if you listen to the top bank executives at Wells Fargo, at JP Morgan Chase, they're don't they they don't sound particularly interested in hanging around in mortgage. They they will because they still have a lot of clients that need mortgage services, already banking clients, whether they're, you know, people who have a, a checking savings account, maybe they're private wealth clients, maybe they're you know, uh, in another division at Wells Fargo or J.P. Morgan Chase, but they they're not looking to serve 
a larger segment of the economy. They don't want that kind of risk. They're not interested. Jamie Dimon in particular has made quite a few statements over the years about uh, the Gini program in particular and and FHA lending and why it's not right for depository banks and and how the the risk uh, far outweighs the reward in his view. And the banks are not going to be getting back into that space. There is no expectation that they're going to be filling that gap. They are, however, very cognizant of the administration's priorities And they know that they do need to make an effort to reach minority borrowers. And if they don't, there will probably be some consequences. And so if you look at the agreements that Wells Fargo struck with the federal government, it was like a $4.3 billion settlement, right? A big part of that is Wells Fargo saying, look, we're going to step back from correspondent lending where they picked up a lot of Gini, a lot of MSRs, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of business through it a channel that they didn't necessarily originate. And instead of trying to be active in any program at any level, um, they're going to be doing their own originations, not selling to Fannie, Freddie, Ginny, and they're going to be doing them on a neighborhood basis in, in certain urban areas. And I think you could say that's a much more targeted approach than trying to do mortgage lending in low-income communities in Cleveland, for example, right? That's not what they're really set up to do. Or just in, in middle America, you know, in some of the blue-collar towns that that have been economically left behind. I, I go to upstate New York on occasion, and I mean, you, you could put that that economic area anywhere where there haven't been jobs in 20, 30 years, right? And, and those are places you're not going to find the banks doing a whole lot of mortgage business. It's entirely independent mortgage banks. And this trend line is not reversing. It's it's accelerating. It's picking up. And if the government is serious about the FHA program and the VA program as well, really, um, they're going to have to work with independent mortgage banks on tweaking some of the rules. Uh, there have been a lot of complaints about Ginny's capital requirements in particular. Uh, the FHA recently has cut MIP, which most people are happy about, but also say, hey, it didn't go far enough. You could have easily cut 50 basis points instead of, you know, I think it was 30 that they did. Uh, and so it, it seems like if the federal government is going to prioritize government housing programs that are designed to help the people that haven't had, you know, generational wealth opportunities, haven't had access to good job markets. If you want that to be a priority and if homeownership is a priority in America and it has been really since the advent, um, then you need to do better with these programs because you're not getting the banks back in there. And some of these independent mortgage banks can't make money you know, over a huge number of quarters, uh, they're they're going to focus on programs where they can make money. So I think there's a bigger issue at play here, which is what kind of resources are we willing to put into the FHA program and, and making loans and, and credit available in communities where the opportunities are slimmer. And it, it's increasingly becoming the haves and the have-nots and housing is no different. I think that's a great point. And and what resources, one of the things that um, uh, Dave Stevens and Scott Olson talk about in this is like, uh, you know, they, they uh, talk about 
the expansion of membership in the uh, federal home loan bank system to give access to IMBs. And they're like, you know, listen, this could, this could significantly reduce liquidity risk concerns in the non-bank marketplace. So that's a, that's a resource right there that if they wanted to support this, they could, um, they could make that happen. Yeah. And, and that's because they don't have the same credit overlays that the banks do. Right. And so that's, that's a major, major issue. Um, And, and hopefully that gets resolved fairly soon. I think it would be great if we saw more, more IMBs that are not only active, but are prioritizing that kind of business. If, if you're already struggling with DTI and already struggling with student debt and medical debt and all kinds of, you know, issues, wages haven't really risen in, in a lot of uh, America for quite some time. You need all the help you can get. And Fannie and Freddie haven't really changed the credit box all that much. Um, and Ginny and, and, you know, FHA programs or VA programs where, uh, you know, when it's applicable, um, they need to be effective for people to, to get out of the rent cycle, right? How do you build wealth in America? In, in most cases, it starts with housing. That is so true. I was listening to NPR this morning, as I am wont to do, and um, they were talking, they were interviewing a person who had just become a homeowner who is paying less on her mortgage than she was in her rent. And she's been, you know, she has a great history of, of making her rent payments going back years, but trying to get over the DTI was just so hard because a lot of people make, you know, their, their DTI for their rent, for their housing costs, even if it's not mortgage, you know, is, is over the limit of, of, of what some government programs will do, but they've been making those payments all this time. They're just, you know, they're, they're cutting back on other areas. So Interesting, interesting. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, I also wanted to um, talk about another uh, lending story, which is uh, New American Funding, which enter. Uh, we we wrote a story. They're entering the joint venture space. So the JV space has been uh, something you've covered a lot. Your newsroom is covered, and it's and it goes, you know, in and out of favor. Uh, sometimes we see a lot of JV activity. Where are we right now in that cycle? Yeah, it's definitely been down, and and you don't see a whole lot of new mortgage companies in general, right? I mean, it's. It's a uh, it's it's a tough environment. Most independent mortgage banks lost money in the fourth quarter and and definitely in the first quarter. The stats aren't out yet, but there's no way that they're you know they're doing great. And um and there's been a lot of consolidation. And so when when you see such conditions, it's pretty unusual to see a lot of new joint ventures. And that's because any company needs resources. It needs money to get off the ground. And when money is precious, you don't want to put them into something that is unproven that is uh financially speaking a risk right and um and so uh, i guess you know credit goes out to to NAF for doing this it's um it's it's a little different than what we typically see you know the the joint ventures that we have generally covered in the mortgage space are constructed one of two ways one it's a mortgage company and a home builder and they have partnered up usually like a smaller regional home builder not um, you know, a DR Horton or a Toll Brothers or anything like that. They have their own lending arms that are separate companies that are affiliated. Or, and this is the more common one, you'll see a real estate brokerage that will team up with an existing mortgage lender. And so I think the most prominent of these is guaranteed rate. They have, God, they, they have so many. I, I I can't even remember how many they have, but it's it's like probably a dozen, you know, they have, they have a big one with compass. They have one with anywhere. That's probably the best known that's guaranteed rate affinity. And, and they've been, you know, in the top 
30, 40 mortgage originators in America for many years. It is a well-established company. It is, um, it is by most accounts, a pretty well-run business. And what I've always found fascinating about these joint ventures is when we reported on this, we did really a deep dive and, and tried to deconstruct how were they structured as businesses, how were they staffed, how were the leads generated, what's different about them and, and say a traditional mortgage business, uh, a retail bank, for example. And what we found was really surprising that during the, the refi boom in 2020 and 2021, our expectation was, okay, well, they're probably getting most of their leads from agents that are affiliated because it's just easier to you know, tap into the system or because they have network effects that make it easier to originate that loan, or maybe they have greater insight into the process or they have a portal set up where they can track progress of a loan. Um, and, and that's sometimes true depending on the JV, sometimes not true at all. Uh, and so we sort of expected that they would be doing more proportionally speaking, purchase business than competitors who were really refi heavy. And, you know, a lot of them were like 85, 90% refi in 2020 and to a lesser extent, but still pretty refi heavy in 2021. What ended up happening was when we analyzed all of the, the JVs with real estate brokerages and traditional mortgage companies, they looked exactly like every other mortgage company and that they were super refi heavy and that was their business model. And then when the market shifted last year, right around this time last year, in fact, uh, to very purchase heavy as rates really started to shoot shoot upward. And, and not only that, but the fact that so many people had already refied in 2020 and 2021, and there just weren't a lot of opportunities or people who were incentivized or knew about it or, you know, for whatever reason. But if you had to refi, you already did it, right? And that business just wasn't as prevalent or as, as uh, achievable. And so these companies started to struggle just like every other mortgage company, right? And so it's it's interesting. The benefits of it are that, yeah, often the real estate agent who has to, by law, um, due to RESPA, you know, make it very clear that there is a financial relationship between the brokerage and this JV. And in a lot of cases, you know, already has her own network of loan officers at different mortgage companies uh, and doesn't, as an independent contractor, necessarily find value in having an affiliated JV with the brokerage that their license is held. And so, you're never going to see a guaranteed rate affinity in like the top 10, even though, you know, it's affiliated with anywhere, which is what the second biggest real estate brokerage in the company. Compass has a JV with guaranteed rate. It's not a top 25 mortgage lender, even though Compass is definitely the biggest uh, producer in terms of volume of any real estate brokerage in America and, and does a lot of high-end business too, right? It doesn't happen because these agents are really honestly independent and they care more about the deal going through and already having a relationship. And for the most part, these JVs are call centers and call center business is not doing so great right now. Um, the call center heavy lenders that who have a business model whereby they 
typically are sourcing from their own list of loans and servicing uh, to look for refi opportunities and in some cases, you know, new purchase business, they're not doing very well. The companies that are doing better and nobody's doing gangbusters right now, right? Like even UWM is is not exactly setting the world on fire because the market conditions are just really, really challenging right now. There's so little supply. There are so few people who are willing to list their home right now. And, you know, IMBs don't usually get business with um, new construction. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But um, what this means is you just you don't have a whole lot of opportunities. And so I think it's pretty interesting that they're starting up uh, a few of these joint ventures. None of the joint ventures that exist right now, I would say, are, you know, wildly successful or that there is a model in place where you can make a pretty confident statement that these are going to be really strong businesses in the short term, probably in the medium and long term. Yeah. I mean, you build up um, scale, you build up the ability to uh, really develop relationships with agents if you do right by them, you know, and, and there are a lot of reasons why an agent would be interested in working with an affiliated lender. Um, but agents are also creatures of habit and they're not going to risk when they need every deal to go through. They need everything to break right to make that commission every month. Um, I think you find that people are often more risk averse uh, in, in this kind of marketplace. Having said all of that, NEF is doing a few different types of, they're looking to do uh, a few different types of JVs. So they want to do a 50-50 joint venture with a real estate brokerage. We, we've already touched on that. They want to do one with a larger agent team. And this is a really interesting idea because this is something that having you know conversations with Tracy Veltz at Real Trends, we see a lot more often sort of the teamerage model, right? We're seeing real estate teams that are kind of like brokerages unto themselves, and they're taking on a lot of tasks that previously would have been, uh, you know, handled by other companies, and they're starting to bring them more in house. And so that's probably uh, the most exciting, most intriguing future for a mortgage joint venture is working with a big, you know, maybe a 75 person team that is top producing in, in a specific area of the country. Um, they're probably most of those agents are going to have their own LOs because you don't get to be a top producer as a real estate broker or agent if you don't have really good, uh, solid contacts. I mean, this is a people business and relationships take time to gel. Um, but I think it's pretty exciting, partly because, again, this this is dependent on the Teamerage model, and Teamerage is is growing leaps and bounds. And, and it's a really exciting space because um, you can do more volume and you don't need as much overhead. So it's, it's really fun. It's really interesting to think about. I don't know that NEF has a partner yet, but I think they'll probably find that there are a lot of teams out there that are going to be interested in doing business with them because it is, it is a pretty novel, but not entirely risky operation either. And then we're also... Yeah, I share your enthusiasm. It's great to see anybody starting anything right now in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hats off to NAF for doing that. They're also looking at potentially a joint venture with a home builder. And uh, I think this is also interesting, but for different reasons. And one, the large home builders already have their own mortgage companies and they have more than that. They have really high what are called attach rates, which is the idea that uh, a home builder will have um, 
you know, a, a new homeowner or a prospective buyer finance with them. And they can do that because they can offer better incentives because they can structure the deal in a million different ways. And they've been very heavily incentivizing consumers because they have a lot of supply right now. Um, we've already talked about how low existing home sales are, how low inventory trends are on the existing front. There are a lot of homes that are in the pipeline. There are so many deals to be had because it's the only game in town. I mean, in a lot of America, if you want to buy a house, you're either get into a huge bidding war for a brick colonial built in 2003 and it's priced at 740 and uh, you might have to pay 760 for it, right? If, if you want the privilege of owning that house or you go 15 miles on the outskirts of town and somewhere in Georgia or the Sun Belt and you have your choice of three different styles from a couple different home builders and you can really just decide who's going to give me the better deal, who's, who's going to put me in this home. And so many of them are slashing rates pretty low. They're offering, you know, exciting, interesting financing options. They're, you know, working on higher end finishes for some to incentivize. This is where the money is right now because there just aren't any existing home sales. The problem for loan officers is because of those attach rates, you just, you don't get much business. If you're the everyday loan officer at a guaranteed rate or a loan depot or so you're a mortgage banker at Rocket or even a broker, um, unless you're really working your own client base and you're working on the builder's side, um, it's tough to get that business because the home builder has so many more incentives they can offer to get that person to finance with them, right? It's, it's like, if, have you bought a new car? You know, the, the way they get you is the financing. You know, they'll offer a great rate, you know, a great incentive. Maybe not now because uh, buying a new car is like absolutely crazy, um, almost as bad as <laughs> the, the housing market right now. Um, but but that's that's their value. That's where they want to make money is in the financing and not not even necessarily in the car itself. So um, it's it's kind of a fun space. For NAF, this means that they're probably going to be looking at smaller, more niche or more regionalized home builders that are not, you know, these big publicly traded companies. And there are a bunch of other companies uh, in the mortgage space that have done this too. Loan Depot, who I've mentioned a couple of times, they have a bunch of uh, JVs with home builders. These are not big businesses, but the margins are pretty good. And uh, if you are, let's say, in-house as an LO, it's also a good stepping stone. Um, and some some people who work at JVs do very well. One of the top 10 LOs in America is a guy who works at Guaranteed Rate Affinity. And, uh, you know, he's been one of the top producers for many years now. And, and in fact, this year he was Brian Cohen. Is, is this Chant? Oh, that? okay. Is, oh, I thought it was Chant Venosian. No, no, no. Chant, Chant is number one and has been number one for, for quite some time. This is a, a guy named Brian Cohen. He's a guaranteed rate affinity. And so he's doing new home sales. And in New York, I mean, that's a very different animal, right? You know, because new home sales in New York and Manhattan are going to be starting probably around like the two and a half, three million mark. Um, so that that's a different kettle of fish than, you know, working with like a regional 
stick model home builder who's, you know, building infill in, you know, a former tobacco field in North Carolina, right? Like we're not, we're not talking about the same business at that stage, but, um, but certainly there are a lot of opportunities there. If you go to a more regionalized model, if these home builders don't already have their own mortgage, you know, affiliate. So it's, it's interesting. It's also not something you see very often, as you mentioned, Sarah. Um, this is something we saw pop up a lot in 2020 and 2021 when people had money and were willing to invest in building up these companies. Um, not as much now when, you know, the, the industry is probably going to shed 40 to 50% of their staff. You know, you just don't see a lot of companies that are hiring right now. UWM is really the only one. And as we've mentioned, you know, UWM is, um, they're still, they're not laying people off in a technical sense, but they, they don't have uh, as big a workforce as they did a year ago. Man, it is there is so much going on. Really glad that you and your team are looking at it. We're already out of time. That seemed really fast to me. Um, thank you so much for being on and, and talking about the different parts, especially the big lenders. I'm always interested in what's going on there, and I know our audiences as well. So, James, thanks for joining us. Cool. Thanks for having me. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services, and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.